0: was on Structurally Sound, where experts convene, exploring fresh perspectives, resilient and keen. From power to transport, industries profound, gaining insights to stand secure, competitive, renowned. Merry hosts Mike, Marcus, and Grant, their tales would abound, guests unveiling innovations for threats that confound. Each episode, new strategies were crowned, at the heart of critical infrastructure, structurally sound. I'm Grant Three. Oh. Uh,
1: okay, you know, so I'm leaving. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what I think is, we all shut up. I, you know, there was moments I wanted to jump in the middle. And I said, no, I need to let this one play out. Yeah, I figured this was the nearest to Christmas episode that will air. All right, yes. well done. I'll, okay, you ready, everybody spectacular uh, right well done all right all right
0: let's go
2: you're up keep going all right <laughs> oh that's all he's got yeah, <laughs> no
1: no because no, he started you know reading go ahead yes i'm your host grant three everything that's coming to you right now
0: go ahead coal and switches in my stocking and I'm, uh, I'm a project manager at the institute for homeland security and you have found structurally sound The podcast, the number one podcast of the College of Criminal Justice Institute for Homeland Security. It's the only podcast for the College of Criminal Justice. Fair (laughs) enough. Coming to you today from the cozy studios of the Dan Rather Communications Building, room 310, with my co-hosts as always, Michael Asplund, the director of IHS, and Dr. Marcus Funk from the Mass Communications Department. Who serves as the... Man on the streets, producer, extraordinaire, and co-host. I try. We're excited to have a couple of guests in the studio with us today. Mike, tell us... Uh,
1: oh, you're kicking who, it over to me, are Kicking it over you? to you. Yeah, so first of all, um, we're... we're we're going to get to visit with Clyde Lal again. Uh, I know you're thinking right now, what do you mean again? Well, he was our second, he was our first official podcast guest, but we listened to it, edited it. We got a little carried away on lots of things because we were sort of laughing at him more than we were paying attention to what he had to say. So we felt it was important to bring him back for a second Uh time swinging, at seasoned the, and mature <laughs> more so than before. Hello. Clyde. he scripted today. Yes. Uh, oh, you found your voice. He you showed up totally hoarse this morning. Oh, no wonder you're so irritated when you walked in. All right. That explains it. It wasn't even connecting with me oh, until right. this moment, but I'm glad you've recovered. So we'll be visiting primarily with Clyde. Uh, the, uh, I have another guest, an impromptu guest, Gareth Tiefenbach is here in the studio. This is what happens when you agree to go to lunch with me. And then I ask the question, what do you have going for the next hour? And if your response is nothing, then you're going to be drug along. So uh, I'll call him a man on the street junior. But I think that, uh, Gareth, you do. You recently joined the team here at Sam Houston State University over at the Law Enforcement Management Institute there are, I am i don't know the number off the top of my head, but I think there's seven or eight institutes or centers that are housed at uh, criminal justice at the Department of CJ. Uh, we're being an institute, obviously, the Corrections Management Institute, the Law Enforcement Management Institute. And so Gareth was selected to run the de-escalation center, which is over there at, at the CJ building. And Gareth, if you could just introduce yourself, maybe just a little background and tell folks what you're doing over there at your center
3: yeah good to be with you all today uh gareth tiefenbach uh, director of the de-escalation training center at uh, the law enforcement management institute of texas as mike said uh, we're a grant funded center from the department of justice with the uh primary goal of getting de-escalation training out to law enforcement officers in texas oklahoma louisiana and arkansas but we've done trainings all over the place, and we're just kind of using the shotgun approach and getting training out wherever it's possible as as easy and as effectively as we can. So um, if you're listening to this and you're interested in training at your agency, uh, we would love to partner with you. I'm sure we'll have a link or something like that in the, the notes of the podcast here. But uh, enjoying my time, and uh, I'm not sure how structurally sound the individuals in this room are, but I'm sure this podcast is going to go well. So excited to be here.
1: Yeah, he's jumping right in. So thanks, uh, Gareth, for being here. And I I think it's important that folks who are law enforcement, have the law enforcement career path, understand that this is, I I think that you said free, no cost training. It's just a question of reaching out to Gareth and then he can schedule what that um, having they come, the, the instructors come
3: to your agency. I mean, that's really the requirement. Yeah, we've done 18 trainings uh, this year so far. Uh, I've got a a couple dozen more to go next year. Um, So we come directly to agencies, partner with you. There's no cost to you or your agency or your officers. um, All paid for by the federal government. So uh, who who doesn't love that? Yes, they're here to help, right?
1: Okay, so let's jump into uh, the reason we've come together today. It's my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce to you once again, even though it'll be the first time, although it's the second time, uh, Mr. Clyde Lawl. Clyde, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate the invite to Mike. So the backstory for Clyde and I, uh, we go, I guess, 18 months at this point. Uh, the two of us happened to attend the same church together. And uh, as it turned out, our wives connected uh, at church and had a conversation of what your husband do. And my wife said, uh, well, he's the director of the Institute for Homeland Security. And his wife said, really, he's got experience. Can you please hire him? I want him out of my house. And so I think that's kind of how it went. No, no reaction <laughs> to that. He just, he's, he knows that eventually uh, Stacy will deny. hear this. And so he's just fighting his just time. Just to make sure she, she can be mad at me later. That's fine. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for joining us. You'll be the listener that we get on that count. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, Clyde, um, has a great uh, backstory, and uh, before we get to his personal journey, uh, I think uh, we originally wanted to bring him on as a full-time member of the team a year ago, and you got a pretty devastating diagnosis about this time a year ago. You want to talk about that a little bit?
4: Sure. Uh, December first, uh, last year, I was uh, diagnosed with having multiple myeloma at stage four, uh, which was bone marrow cancer. And so my, uh, I guess you say, survival rate, if you will, was uh, was pretty low at the time.
1: Clyde, you came through a pretty horrific event, and uh, you know we, you're blessed. We're all blessed that you, med- medicine is to a state that it was treatable. I had a couple of rough days in there, but you got through it. I think you said at one point, the doctor told him, "We can cure the cancer." but is the treatment what the treatment is going to do to you is kind of more the big issue there but um thank you for being willing to to be here and healthy and I'm looking forward to hearing from you so no. go ahead
4: no no absolutely and I and I appreciate that Mike yeah. Mike's been very supportive of me through this
1: whole process uh, all right so let's don't jump into this uh, I think that what Clyde's trying to do is fill the time so he doesn't have to speak. Well, luckily, we have lightning rounds planned for later. So. Yeah, oh, that's right. So, all right. Well, Clyde, let's start with your story. I think one, a couple of things that, um, uh, number one is that you don't have any formal education. You came up uh, through the School of Hard Knocks, as it were, and have built a five-decade career on experience, and, uh, but ultimately uh, working in multiple different of multiple different verticals of critical infrastructure. Could you just tell us your story?
4: Sure. Um, And just to clarify one thing, I I did go to Sam for about two years, but uh, I was very immature at the time for a 17, 18-year-old and – when uh, a company in Houston uh, offered me a job, that was the first thing I thought of was just uh, money in the bank because I was pretty much dead broke as a young college student and struggling along the way as well to keep my grades up, and so uh, I took an opportunity there um, with a company that was an electric utility company, you know, at the time, and uh, which is. Uh, uh, the, uh, which was uh, the opportunity they presented me, of course, was to go through an apprenticeship training program, a uh, four-year program. And I went through that, uh, came out, uh, as what they called a head journeyman, electrician working in substation, uh, maintenance substation operations. Um, and from there, I, uh, soon after got into, uh, the safety health and environmental department with that organization where I spent basically 15, 16 years with them. After that, uh, a friend of mine, uh, that was working at, uh, Herman hospital was a, a chief pilot of lifelight there. And, uh, he called me and said, Hey, we have an opportunity over here for a chief safety officer. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, well, I don't know anything about healthcare you know, but safety, safety, anywhere you go, right. There's regulations, compliance issues that you have to deal with, no matter where you're in transportation, healthcare, energy, chemical sector, um, in terms of critical infrastructure. So, so, um, I, uh, went interviewed, got the job, uh, uh, enjoyed the opportunity there working in healthcare for about three years, uh, uh, with, uh, that particular hospital that was in need of a three year accreditation certification from the joint commission and, uh, Uh, I uh, assembled a team and helped them get that accreditation, which uh, led to a significant amount of money uh, to help sustain that uh, program
1: uh, there at that uh, that hospital. Clyde, just real quick. So when we talk about time, how much time passes from, you said you're 18, 19, to how much time is going by at this point, like years-wise?
4: That's about uh, 18 years. Roughly. So I was with them for 15 and in the hospital for three. So and I left here when I was I was probably nineteen at the time. So yeah.
1: So you're 18 years in, you have had 15 years with an electrical company, right? And then you bumped over to healthcare. Right. Uh the difference, the only difference was the venue. You were still doing safety work, right? right. And then what if if I were to ask you to reflect on those early years, and this is really for students who are here right now getting degrees. So they're going to be leaving us with something, whether it be a criminal justice degree or uh, any uh, engineering degree, a business degree. What were the key moments? Can, Can you think of, and I recognize I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but when you look reflect on those first couple of decades, were there some key moments for you that was like connected or a person or an event that solidified this is this is the calling. This is where I want to serve. I guess for me anyway, um,
4: looking back, there were, there, there were a lot of opportunities, I guess, that just kind of came my way, uh, uh, from other people. Uh, if you will, I, it was almost like, um, uh, to me, this was like a calling, you know, if I can use that term. And, uh, and as I was, as I was, uh, Planning out, or as I was kind of following my career path and and where I was at at the time in the safety, health, environmental field, that being a regulatory type of discipline with a lots of you know standards, uh, standard operating procedures, those kind of things, we built or we and I say folks around me uh, that uh, that I was working with or connected with. Uh, we built a lot of systems, a lot of business management systems uh, around safety, health, environmental and security programs and even risk management. We got into the risk management aspect of things. And so the risk management side of things really intrigued me because it got more into the business side of things. And so uh, I started, again, learning more, going to different uh you know, conferences, seminars, training, connecting with people in the risk. So
1: just, just want to jump in. Sure. So what I'm hearing, what started is you went operational, but as time went on, you saw these risks as being an element of this and mitigating risk, and that kind of changed the focus. But what I also heard in that is a willingness to take your own risk in terms of, I'm going to follow this. Hey, I have an opportunity. I have this relationship with somebody. They're telling me, let's go do this. I mean, here at here at IHS, if anyone asks us if we want to do something, the answer is yes. Yes, yes. yeah, that little delayed, but that's okay. Um, but would you say that your willingness to go and step and take a risk, if and and was it really a risk or was it an opportunity that someone gave you and you were willing to take that opportunity?
4: Well, I think it was a little bit of both, to be honest with you. I mean, I think some some side of things that I had totally no background or experience in. There were other people that were willing just because of my work ethics or, or, uh, my character, I guess, if you will, w- were willing to, uh, chance, you know, an opportunity for me, uh, they trusted me. They valued, uh, I guess my insight, uh, in things, uh, I'm just a kind of a, uh, a really a simple, but practical, pragmatic, I mean, practical type of a, a guy and, um, and I'm a good listener. And so uh, that really helped a whole lot rather than, you know, um, just uh, maybe sounding a bit pretentious and knowing more about a subject that I knew nothing about, if that makes any sense at all. Well,
1: and I think that what's important is you had a work ethic that people saw, and that's number one. And then number two, they trusted you because you made – I would assume you're going to make – you're making decisions. They're sound. They're reasonable. And so – and even if you didn't have specific uh, experience in a particular area, you had people who surrounded you who were helping to push you forward. And that's kind of what I was hoping we would get to is those things is that for folks who are going into the critical infrastructure security sector as employment or even considering it as an alternative to law enforcement, it's okay to take risks. You need to come in and you need to work hard – Don't ask for Fridays off or half day Friday off. Don't ask what the television policy is during watching during breaks. Uh, I recall uh, one of my daughters was an intern and called me and said, everyone's gone to lunch. I don't know what to do. And I said, get up out of your seat and go fill the paper and all the copy machines, dump the trash, do whatever you got to do. Just don't sit because the, the uh, right now, the default is if you're bored You grab your iPhone, your Android, and you check your whatever it is that you fill your time with. And that's – that. people – you get – if all it takes is a second. If I walk into a room and I see somebody holding an iPhone, they're not doing their job. And maybe they're texting family. Maybe they're looking – I got it. But you see that once, you're like, hmm. But if you see it repeatedly over and over – but again, that – You know, that goes back a few decades. So, you know, there would be other areas of distraction, but you, you stayed focused on that. So let's focus, let's now change subjects to the second half of that career. Let's go past that 20 year mark. So you're in and where, what's going on at that point?
4: Yeah, I left the uh, healthcare uh, organization and uh, this particular hospital uh, after that three year uh, stint and a friend of mine called me up and uh, worked in the transportation logistics, uh, industry. Uh, they were, it, he, his, his company he was with was starting up a new operation and they were looking for somebody and, and, uh, to help them build a, a like a driver re- recruitment, driver services, driver safety, driver regulatory compliance department. And he knew I had a lot of background and experience in, in those areas. And so, uh, I jumped on board with that organization and became there uh after about 5 or 6 years with them I became their uh, their first um, interim vice president of uh of safety and uh, driver retention which was uh which was a huge step up for a, an old uh, shall I say not educated country boy journeyman,
0: uh, electrician uh, turned
1: journeyman uh, electrician. Right. So So, uh, Clyde, let me ask this. Um, was, was that a, I'm trying to think of the right word. Oh, shoot moment for you when you jumped into transportation and all of a sudden you're an executive vice president, or did you feel like I was, I'm built for this. I can do this. for, For
4: me, it, um, I, I I think I had uh, I think I had matured uh, enough along the way in in learning how corporate America functioned, uh, learning how organization, it, regardless of the type of a business uh, sector or uh, it was uh, whether it be electric utility, whether it be healthcare, whether it be transportation. You know, um, I paid just close attention to, uh, a lot of details along the way and, uh, how business functioned. Uh, and I started reading I self-taught, I started reading a lot about leadership, uh, leadership and management, uh, learning, uh, um, organizational dynamics and how, uh, organizations functioned. Uh, read many books on things like, uh, you know, uh, who moved my cheese classic
1: um, hold on so what were the names of the four mice let's see who is the who moved my cheese if you're really a who moved my cheese guy this is a test
0: no i have no idea what we're talking Shadrach, about mishak and abednego oh
1: that's close <laughs> uh hem and haw sniff and scurry four mice in the story uh who moved my cheese is a uh you may be familiar with situational leadership by uh, two authors hershey and blanchard and they have a, uh, one of, I don't know if one or both of them spun off the Who Moved My Cheese, but it talks about change, basically, and the story about these four mice in a maze and looking for for cheese. They're going to the different cheese stations, and all of a sudden, the particular station they were at has no more cheese. And the cheese got moved somewhere else in the story of these four mice. And it's actually a pretty clever, there's, a, there's an adult version. The first one was the grown-up version, and then there's a kid's book that, of it. But, um, so you brought up who moved my cheese, uh, cause I was going to follow with, Hey, so what were the, what were the key books for you that were influential? Like if people are out there right now, because what you've told is this story of learning and experience without a formal, that you were self-taught, you were seeking opportunities for, uh, elevating your work, but also paying attention to what's out there book wise, or is there a program or a book that other than Who Moved My Cheese," that you would say um, it was highly impactful on you?
4: Uh, I One of the, one of the ones, I'll probably get the title of it wrong, but you guys would probably know it anyway, it's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective
1: Leaders. Successful People. Successful. I think it's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Successful People. people was it's a Blanchard. It's another, it's another blancher. Now you know, You know, Mike,
4: uh, to you, uh, point previously too. One of the things that's helped me, and it's certainly with the analogy of who moved my cheese and and the uh, maze that those mice would go through and be a dead end. It that's for for me was kind of a pathway, you know, that in my career that I was moving, if you will. I w- I could go down this road here, regardless of the business type that it was, you know, and th- there would be either a mentor come along. Someone that would take me to the side and say, you know, Clyde, I think this would be a great opportunity for you and redirect me to even another venture, if you would, another opportunity. And and along the way, through the course of all of this, as I began to put one and, if you will, one and one together, I began to realize, you know, what critical infrastructure is really all about because here I am. I'd worked in the transportation sector. I'd worked in the healthcare sector. I'd worked in the energy sector. And then, uh, shortly after my, uh, seven year run with the transportation list logistics, I moved over into the oil and gas industry and working for a, a major drilling contractor for about the, well, that was the remainder of my career for about, uh, 18, 18 and a half, 19 years almost with them. So uh,
1: so and, you you just, you said something. You said, I just discovered what critical infrastructure was. I, I should have written it down when you made the statement. So what did you just, what is it?
4: Well, if, if, for me, critical infrastructure is, it, it's a lot of things, right? It's, 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 it's the key components built within an organization that will keep it financially sound. And that could be a lot of things. It could be policies, procedures work instructions, it, it could be all the disciplines that um, a large corporation, for instance, and the large corporations I was in, they all had finance departments, accounting departments, engineering departments, logistics and purchasing departments. And so when I went into the uh, the uh, oil and gas sector, one of my biggest roles and responsibilities was to build business management systems that were ISO, that's, you know, the ISO 9000, you know, quality management systems. They were, they were built and they were certifiable systems.
1: So uh, what's an ISO, what's ISO
4: 9000? International Service or International Organization of Service. It, it, it's kind of backwards, you know, IOS, but it's ISO. They, they uh, are, are accreditation organization that uh, that would come in and audit your business management systems for either quality management or for health, safety, environmental. I mean, there's a lot of different type of systems and management systems, if you would, depending on the organization, um, that they could come in and audit and then certify your organization to, to put, if you would, their proverbial stamp of approval on, which which once ISO, ISO put their stamp of approval, uh, their brand, if you will, on uh, your website, that generated a tremendous amount of new business opportunities for us. And, and that's where, at the C-suite level, they began to, to look and see, well, and this guy may bring some value to the table here a whole lot more than what we thought of originally. Right? So
1: you're That's touching all. on something criti- which, which, co- which comes up constantly, and that is how do you make a value-add proposition to C-suite, which is your CSO, CSO, chief financial officer, chief executive officer, CEO, and so forth, that security and resiliency is important within the context of critical infrastructure. So it's 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 you you've woven a very cool story. Now, uh, one of the things that we always ask our guests and and so as a result, uh, you know, we'll just I'm going to fill in the rest. You complete this career, you retire and then you needed something to do. And we f- go back a couple of years and we met uh, through our wives and which was a good thing because we brought you on as a part-time project manager and as of a month ago now I guess you we uh, were able to accept the role as full time project manager. That was disrupted, of course, by the cancer, but we got through that together. And here you are, full time, which is which is very cool. Uh, I I always ask our guests, so I want to hear a story, like something that you had to navigate, go through. What's that cool moment? Or and and we, as a result of the introduction at church, got together for coffee, and during that time started exchanging war stories. Now I have more cop stories than I like twenty six years worth. Some are good, some are not so good. But I always, when I talk to folks, whether they be military folks, mostly military, they still tell these overseas stories that are absolutely insane. And Clyde then launches into this story. There was this little country on the north part of Africa, continent of Africa, called Libya. And uh, there was a point at which,
4: well, it was twenty eleven that he came in. Uh, when we were operating there and uh, we, when I was in the oil and gas sector and we had a, uh, what we called a small operation, we had, uh, you know, one rig operation working there at the time and had a, a country office, we called it, uh, with a country manager and a staff and and then our field, uh, our rig hands, our field force out there, you know, we had uh, operated 24-7. So we had about 80 People there. Uh, this is
1: like the fourth time I've heard this, and every time you add a little bit more detail, so it makes the story <laughs> even richer for me as I hear about it. Was well, this one question I did have was was it a, a offshore drill or it was on on the onshore?
4: This our operation there just happened to be land. It just happened to be a land. R- uh, land rig operation instead of a... So the shore.
1: proverbial so such and such hits the fan, and you are stateside here running the security operation, and you're tasked with getting those people out. So tell us a little bit about what that was like.
4: Well, it was... It was it was uh, hair-raising at the time, and I had very little hair on my head to really speak of, but I guess it did raise the hair on the back of my neck when uh, I received a call from our country manager, our area manager, country manager, and at the time, and he had informed me that um, Muammar Gaddafi and uh, his militia, if you will, or his military decided to come in uh, Tripoli there where our office was. He wanted to... Um, I Guess intimidate at the highest level the uh his own people in the country and and the uh the expats that were there doing business in that country and and so he decided to come in and and methodically go down through these businesses and begin to just ransack them if you would uh he would uh you know d- Destroy property and and and
0: your employees. You've you've got eighty people in country. Most of those are expats. A a, a lot
4: no a lot uh, uh, most of our. Operations management people were uh, were expats, but a a lot of the other folks were were nationals. Along well, in this particular operation, we had a lot of both—a combination of a lot of expats and some nationals as well working working in country.
0: I mean, pe- people matter, but I, you know, I'm just listening to this story uh, unfold, and you know, from your perspective as the uh, C-suite executive over safety and health, uh, you know, this could become an international uh, crisis kind of quickly.
2: Well, it was sorry, I not mean to no. interrupt. I mean, it was, you know, I've been been scrolling Wikipedia and, and refreshing my history here. If this was 2011, it was I mean, this is the the Libyan civil war that we're talking about and it ends. And I wanted to check. But um, in October of 2011 is when uh, Gaddafi is killed, you know, pretty I'll spare the details, but it was graphic, you know, and this was a guy who'd been a you know dictator since 1969. So the level of upheaval that you need to get to to even get to that point where a coup is possible in that kind of repressive environment is tremendous. And then once the head rolls off, then um then you've got anarchy. And, you know, that also descended into chaos. So i mean it it it's a literal and figurative powder keg <laughs> that you're talking about here
4: no absolutely absolutely the the dynamics at the time it's you know that uh, that the event was taking place they were just a uh, just a tremendous amount of 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 uncertainty right obviously with their own with the own with with the own their own people internally uh uh expat oil companies that were there running you know running their business and in in the country at the time, I mean you know in terms of direction and what we're going to do we you know it's this uh, it's this force majeure we're going to shut things down, you know, and completely get out and move out, which for the most part was taking place and uh and so there i there I was on a phone call with the area manager at the time, telling me everything that was going on in the area office and uh which was basically nothing but chaos and destruction because his people uh, his military his militia if you would armed forces came in and started tearing up everything physically just destroying the offices and ransacking them and everything and at the particular time of this you know as I tell Mike this one uh, story again um uh, which is almost hard to fathom even today and I look back and I think about this we had a particular individual who was classified as a driver. We called him a driver because he went and ran parts out to the rig or he would carry people that came in that we'd meet at the airport carry them out to, to the area office or either to the, uh, uh, to the job site, rig site itself. And, and, uh, Bless, bless his heart. Uh, he decided to stay behind there in the office with uh, what we had an iridium radio, and he was communicating to the area manager, and the area manager was communicating with me everything that he was seeing that was happening because this guy was back up into like a crawl space up in the attic, if you would, above ceiling tile, you know, watching everything, you know, taking place, and these guys were taking pop shots all over the place, and. And and uh and so I mean, you know, his life was definitely in jeopardy. Uh uh, but he was talking to the area manager, just giving him a play-by-play. I mean, probably better than any dadgum, gum, you know, SEC announcer uh could make um <laughs> against the uh, Georgia Bulldogs. But um nevertheless, he uh he was giving us a play by play. And so by by having that you know, communication at that level, to that degree. When we activated our, our our situation, what we call our security condition one, ccon level one, which is total evacuation of the operation. The area manager had already began to had already begun to get people out because we had on ground security people that was telling us about what was going on, and so they had already left the office and what have you unscathed, fortunately. And we had shut down our rig operation. And so, therefore, we were uh, getting all the hands, you know, in a vehicle that we could transport to the airport because we had had a chartered plane ready on the tarmac to take off and fly over, to to be honest with you, just to the next country over there. Um, And uh, from, from a safety standpoint. But when we were driving to or when our crews were driving to the airport there. Qaddafi's uh, military had already commandeered the commercial jetliner we were going to use. And the area manager, uh, having really paid close attention to managing a emergency situation, followed our security evacuation plan to the letter, and he made a call ahead of time as a secondary call, if you would, to a uh, port there and uh, uh, was able to commandeer um, a vessel where we um, diverted the uh, crews and employees to uh, to that port on that vessel and transported them across the uh, sea there to the island of Malta, where they safely uh, landed
1: and uh, no one was hurt or injured in this
4: whole process.
1: So what you're leaving out is is the guy was giving you play by play up in the drop ceiling. There's rounds that are flying around and somebody's telling him, would you just be quiet and call us back later when you're safe? But the guy made it through the onslaught without a scratch. and he was such a dedicated employee when it was all over. I believe the conversation was something along t- along the way of Mr. Lol. there's still a vehicle here that belongs to you guys that's in good shape. How would you like me to get it back to you? to which you said, friend, that is your severance. Enjoy the truck. It's yours. Uh, please get yourself home safely. Uh, but I, I just, uh, I like hearing the story every single time. Well, I mean, I think that when we, you, when we all think through our, um, our experiences in our professional life, we've got all these crazy moments that if we aggregate them all together, it's like a, it's like a mission impossible story. We get those, all of us have those kind of cool moments, uh, but with that, let's let's bring it back. One of the things that I asked you to do when you came on board with us t- is to write what turned into Clyde's Nuggets of Wisdom. I think, was that the title of the paper? Yeah, that's kind of what we call Working it. Working title, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and so I wanted to uh, have a, a, what we're calling it a speed round for you to talk about the highlights of that paper and, and what, what are the things you want folks to know. So what do we just, so how many topics are there? Five. All right. So we're going to do three minutes each or two minutes each? We'll, we'll do
0: two minutes and uh, see how it goes with the speed round. This is a new feature for structurally sound.
4: All right. And it's definitely a new feature for Clyde Law, who <laughs> talks slow <laughs> enough that it would take two minutes to say hello. But nevertheless, well, here we go. I'm prepared yeah. and let's, let's take off then. Take, huh? take some right.
0: risks and try things. But talk, talk to us a little bit about remaining secure and resilient.
4: Okay, you know, as I began to look back on in my career experience and what have you, and and I, and I told you, I'm, for the most part, I'm self taught, so I I do a lot of reading, and uh, as I was doing the research on this, I, I looked back and and I uh, I found a vision statement that I thought was very apropos to uh, doing this doing this document or, or preparing this document for Mike. Uh, and, and it would happen to be the uh, National Infrastructure Protection Plan, uh, the NIPP of 2013, and and built in into it was a vision statement that I'm going to share with you, and from there we can go into the key learnings that one of the ones that you just brought up, which was remain secure resilient, and what what that really means to me as a critical infrastructure professional, right, and how to be successfully in this field. And here's the vision statement: It says a nation in which physical And cyber critical infrastructure remains secure and resilient, key point number one, right? Um, With vulnerabilities reduced, which will be a key point number two we're going to talk about, consequences minimized, key point number three, threats identified and disrupted, key element number four, and response and recovery hastened. You know, I, as I was looking at that and we're reading that vision, I thought this is the perfect outline for me to do this paper and for and and just discuss based on my career what that really means to me. So, you know, uh, Grant, in looking at that key learning, number one, remaining uh, secure and resilient right quick, uh, if you will. Uh, some of the uh, nuggets uh, that that I want uh, uh, anyone that might be interested in pursuing this kind of field. It's to, it's to remember this, be passionate.
1: Ran out of time, buddy. (laughs) Don't let him get in your head. (laughs) Just keep going. All
4: right, go ahead. (laughs) Folks, you see what I'm talking about? I told you I couldn't say hello in two minutes and he's already got me timed out and I hadn't even started the first point yet. But nevertheless, (laughs) I will pick up the speed sort of uh, on this, but you know. Passionate, uh, individuals need to be passionate about what they do for a living and in, in the process of being passionate, I, it, it helped me, it promulgated me to be more of a constant learner where I was continually learning regardless of what that, um, piece of the business was. And in this case, obviously critical infrastructure, so continually training and myself, uh, at conferences and at seminars, making every available uh, opportunity for educating myself through online training certifications, uh, having trusted partners, going to uh, organizations or institutions that I trusted, like the American um, Society of Industrial Security, that you know is a it's a longstanding global community. Of uh, security practitioners that I would go to and and pull from them, pull from uh, their experiences and past. Uh, uh, another inf- uh, another organization which is uh, CISA and it's a government organization and it, that's the Critical Security and Infrastructure Security Agency is one that really provides a lot of guidance and support <clears throat> to the critical infrastructure. Uh, Industry, uh, it, they provide a lot of support to the local, state, and industrial, if you will, community. And uh, they're very valuable resources. They provide alerts, advisories. Um, they do a lot of training. They do. They can conduct assessments. They do a, a analysis. They'll help you with uh, support planning in in your organization. And so I relied on what I call the subject matter experts uh, to help me to build uh, not only a, a a strong, you know, management program, a system, if you will, but uh, educated me further along the way uh, in that field. Uh, and, you know, from a security standpoint, I, I think, you know, that word resilient, Mike, that word resilient, you know, we use that word a lot of times, but, um, and people ask, you know, you can, you can, you can pull it up in Wikipedia and what resilient means, uh, which uh, there was a, a, a quote by Winston Churchill, and he said, never, ever give up. And that's kind of been my, you know, if you will, mot- mantra, if you will, motto or whatever, in terms of of, of learning and in terms of uh, building systems and that kind of good thing. And so uh, remaining secure and resilient means that I have to find every available technology uh, every available opportunity to learn more and more about critical infrastructure, about our business opportunities so that I can make the program here at the Institute better and, uh, than it ever been and make it a world-class organization.
1: I didn't even, I just didn't even stop typing there because I think what we want to do is pick two. I know there's five points. We're going to put the paper available up on the, on the website. So let's What's your next one? Let's see how we do. So, we've got uh, minimizing
0: vulnerabilities as your next uh, nugget. Well, why don't you read the last, read them all, and then he could pick two. Gotcha. All right. So, number one was remain secure and resilient. Number two, minimize vulnerabilities. Three is consequences minimized. And then threats identified and disrupted. That's actually my favorite one. And then response and recovery. Accelerated is the
1: fifth one. So your last one will be four. So four is now three. <laughs> what is two going to be?
4: <laughs> let me let me just go ahead and since uh, since I'm giving the pri- I'm doing the podcast right, I'm gonna go ahead and pick it. Uh, minimize <laughs> vulnerabilities. That's the one we're going to talk about because I can tell you when you minim- minimize the vulnerabilities to a a, a program or uh, internally in, in terms of critical infrastructure. There's a lot of things here that are very important uh, in doing that. Number one is performing risk assessments. Uh, you know, by doing uh, by by performing risk assessments there, you obviously you identify uh, uh, crucial threats, threats to through to an organization. You assess and you minimize uh, those vulnerabilities. You evaluate the impact that they're going to have on. On the assets, uh, your infrastructure, or your or your systems within that organization, and you got to consider the probability of the occurrence of identified threats as well. And so, the threats that I'm speaking of, for instance, in this particular case, could be a cyber threat, could be human uh, threat, it could be natural disasters, or it could be aging assets. Within an organization, it's definitely a it's definitely a a, a serious threat. And from a vulnerability standpoint, uh, we, we could look at systems with no backups or or lack of employee training, uh, uh, no policies for managing uh, uh, internal issues that uh, could be a crisis of any type. Or, you know, it could be a financial crisis, whatever that may be. It could be again one of the man-made crisis or a natural. Uh, disaster of some type and uh, or disgruntled workers uh, that uh, definitely from an insider threat standpoint could disrupt, you know, the critical infrastructure. And last but not least, a lack of cybersecurity talent that you have within an organization. People that really don't thoroughly understand all the technology that's out there, especially as we're dealing and getting more and more in an artificial intelligence, uh, you know, security drones, robots, those kind of things.
0: It's definitely growing today and uh, an increasing concern, especially for our smaller and medium-sized businesses, too, that don't have all those resources. Well, thank you, Clyde. Um, I I think that's been insightful. And like Mike said, we're going to have a uh, link to Clyde's white paper uh, in the show notes. So if anybody's interested in uh, checking those nuggets out in closer detail, they'll be able to do that
1: great well uh Marcus i didn't even bring in the man on the street perspective you've just been listening <laughs> well i'm definitely going to read the paper I think what
2: what strikes me in just in your personal story and in your, the profession is how many times you've taken a leap of faith you know when you're talking about jumping to a new job or a new field, that takes a lot of trust, and that's not something that comes easy for me you know my Yeah, my resume before I got tenure was pretty good. After I got tenure, that job security, it became much, much better, you know? It's supposed to be the opposite because I have a hard time taking those leaps of faith. And I think that is it's important on a personal level, but it tracks to this critical infrastructure too, because how easy would it have been for somebody in Libya, you know, one of those employees, to be concerned, hey, if I tell my bosses things are going sideways. They're going to say, no, it doesn't matter. Just keep pumping. It'll be fine. It'll blow over. And then you're totally on your own in a country that's on fire. And that's not what happened because you all had that trust and you had that that, you know, I'm not even sure what the word is, but that infrastructure, those plans, exactly. you know, and that just seems so I worry that it's rare. But when you do see it, it's you know, it's inspiring in a lot of ways.
4: Well, Look, I, go ahead, sir. No, I was just going to say it's just been a it's been a great career for me. I, I've loved every bit of it because it it's made me much more of a well rounded individual from a business standpoint. Uh, you know, even though I may not have a, a bachelor's or master's degree, I got a PhD in uh, in world class business organizations and how they function, uh, how they manage, and how they are successful uh, in uh, maintaining, if you will. Uh, their economics, or their economies of scale, that's in, that's so important and so important to us in terms of Institute of Homeland Security, right? Because we ultimately are about making sure we do everything we can to uh, secure Texas's economy, bottom line.
1: like, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I very, very much appreciate you taking the time to do this not once but twice and working through all this stuff. For everyone out there, uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Make good choices, as uh, I like to say when we wrap things up. Gareth, thanks for doing a cameo. Appreciate that. Marcus, your input, uh, the work you've done, Grant, on this. And uh, with that, I just want you to know that uh, here at IHS, we are disruptive. But helpful. All right. We are learning. Have a great uh, rest of your year. Goodbye.
2: Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Aspland, Grant Threat, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and the artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's, and enthusiastic Bearcats
1: everywhere.